0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: It's the Yukon podcast. I'm Professor Stephen Dyson. And I'm Professor Jeff Dudas. And Jeff, we are here today to talk about James Bond. Now, one of us did not get the memo. No.
0: One of us did.
1: But I don't know which one. <laughs> I thought I'd wear a suit. James Bond wears suits. You thought you'd wear a, a sort of plaid uh, shirt yeah,
0: because... Well, this is more of a kind of everyman James Bond. I see. Yeah.
1: You're bringing James Bond to the people. Yeah. Um, but you are the only one of us who's wearing an expensive watch. I it's don't not expensive. It's not an no Omega? No. Well, I'm very disappointed. <sighs> okay. So. <laughs> so we are here to talk about James Bond, not just because that's a cool thing to do, but right. because... We have an exceptional guest who is about to join us.
0: Our very first guest on the pod.
1: She is Professor Susan Burgess, a distinguished professor emerita of political science at Ohio University. Jeff, she's written a book.
0: It's a great book.
1: What's it called? It's
0: called LGBT Inclusion in American Life, Pop Culture, Political Imagination, and civil rights
1: that sounds right up our street. I'm, I'm really looking to looking forward to talking uh talking about that book um it's about all sorts of things yes. not just not just bond but there's Correct. a very hefty analysis mm-hmm. of james bond basically spanning the entire franchise yes so i think what we're going to do with professor burgess is uh pick out uh, you know certain of the of the movies that maybe exemplify her main theme, which is uh, that Bond's kind of portrayal of, of masculinity yeah. in particular, has gone through several, several phases, yeah. concluding with um, you know the Daniel Craig era, where his portrayal of masculinity, femininity, yeah. the, and the, the general movie's portrayal of kind of sexuality and inclusiveness, mm-hmm. uh, it sort of changes absolutely yeah. from the, the very early Sean Connery movies.
0: Yeah, and what we'll see is there's really been a, a rather profound transformation in the Bond franchise over the course of six or seven decades.
1: I'm excited. shall yeah. we shall we get her in? Let's get to it. Okay. So welcome to the Yukon podcast, Professor Susan Burgess.
2: Ah thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Yeah, we're delighted to talk with you today about your uh, excellent book LGBT Inclusion in American Life, Pop Culture, Political Imagination, and Civil Rights. There is the very That's book. It projected through our screens (laughs) a fantastic book yes Uh, we both really enjoyed reading it
2: thank Um, you so much I appreciate that
1: yeah lots of stuff going on in the in the book and lots of uh, pop culture texts are addressed but we wanted to talk with you today about um, the James Bond section uh, of your book and I think we thought we'd begin with just briefly recounting kind of how we come to the to the Bond franchise I obviously you know have the the kind of I mean I know everyone can see this already, but the the physical resemblance Mm -hmm. and indeed bodily resemblance to to Daniel Craig.
0: Yeah. Um, Sure.
1: sure. Yeah. So so that's how I I come at it. It's it's a double-edged sword, a burden and a a joy for me. Well,
0: it's something you have to manage. Yes. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I don't know. Do do you two... How how did did you, Professor Burgess, uh, come to to the James Bond franchise?
2: Uh, Well, I'm not like any of the Bond girls. (laughs) 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 Because the, the Bond girls who... They're not Bond girls, but the people in the movies who are like me must be killed. So, yeah, (laughs) Um, I think the first my first interaction with the Bond series was when I was pretty young, maybe about 10 years old or so. And I used to read this um, magazine. It's like satirical magazine of, you know, like cartoons and things called Mad Magazine, M-A-D. Alfred E. Newman. Yes, that's it. That's it. That's exactly right. And what that magazine offered was kind of satirical takes on pop culture at the time. And I really think that's partly why, you know, a lot of my writing is about pop culture. And before that, a lot of it was about satire and so forth. And I really attribute it to that. So I think the first um, the first uh, time I saw it in Mad Magazine was uh, around the time of George Lazenby who I Mm -hmm. think is probably in some ways the hardest one to understand. First of all, short, you know, he just has a couple, but um, yeah, I think so my angle on it was not straight up, you know, that it was already like it was being poked fun at. And I a little bit tried to write that way in the, in the chapter too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, so my experience, my first experience with James Bond was going with my brother and my father to the movie theater to see the first run of four Your eyes only which I think was in 1981. And I was, I was texting with my brother before we started potting and he confirmed that that memory is accurate. He also told me that we saw Moonraker together, which would have been two years earlier. I do not remember that at all. And How
2: lucky for that you, was, that's such a bad film.
0: <laughs> well, I think it's worth it's worth thinking through and I doubt we'll get to this, but just a little bomb to plant for the audience. I think The Man with the Golden Gun might be worse than Moonraker. I, I think The Man with the Golden Gun is one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life.
2: Well, there are some stinkers. There's no doubt.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You planted a bomb with a, with a like extended detonation time, which is a very, very Bondian yeah. uh, trope, isn't it? <laughs> I wonder if we'll escape it exploding by, uh, by some not of us, talking about some that of movie. Some of us can
0: look like Bond and others of us can think like <laughs> Bond villains. Yeah,
2: that's- <laughs> and some <laughs> of us can be killed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so susan we i mean we uh you you've approached bond as a um you know as, as both a popular culture text but as as also a a franchise that's had a kind of real world impact mm. as well and i i wondered if you wanted to just give us the the kind of overview of the the argument you make about the the importance of bond in your book
2: sure sure so i mean it kind of relates to what we were just talking about for so for a lot of um like, you know, young men or boys, Mm -hmm. you know, that's where they first come into or one of the places where they first come into like their earliest um, fantasies about women and so forth, you know, that so it can be very formative, um, which is, you know, depending upon which period you're in, uh, somewhat disturbing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But it has been very formative in that way. And even in political science world, you know, in politics world, um, you know, no less than JFK had a screening of I think Dr. No in the White House, uh, which is the first one. And you know, was was uh, said in one of the documentaries, you know, about the, the numerous documentaries about the Bond series. JFK was um, reported to have said, um, "I wish I had him on my staff." Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now, yeah. I, w- I
1: wonder in what position, in what role, would. I mean,
2: I don't know, but I think, you know, knowing what we now know about JFK's, you know, the more lurid part of his life story and so forth. I mean, it kind of makes sense that it would align for him in a certain kind of way, but also he showed that movie doctor during the um, Cuban missile crisis, I think mm-hmm. was when he was watching it, you know? So, I mean, that's pretty profound. Right. And yep. I, so I think, it's not just that um, it shaped how people s- saw things in terms of like sexuality and so forth, but also in terms of just like global understandings and so forth. Even, you know, someone as sophisticated as JFK was, you know, but it mm-hmm. makes sense in a certain way, right? Because it was very much in those days, a creature of its time in the Cold War, you know, so, and JFK was such a Cold War president, you know, so, so it totally makes sense that it, he yeah. vibed with it in that way.
0: Yeah. And this is one of the things that's so interesting and illuminating about your analysis, Susan, about the Bond franchise is that there is this kind of consistent uh, uh, embedding of the themes of the movie with the kind of broader um, politics and culture of the day, especially around matters of sexuality, right? And so you've got this kind of three-part sequencing, right? With respect to the development of LGBTQ rights and acceptance and inclusion. And I I wonder if you could kind of walk us through a little bit about that three-part sequence and how, as we'll talk about extensively today, how the different eras of the Bond franchise mirror and, uh, and, and maybe shape some of those moments.
2: Yeah, it's kind of constitutive, right? Mm -hmm. Both ways. So, um, well, the thing is that in political science, um, public opinion polls could track the way that people in the U.S., Americans' attitudes about LGBT people changed over Mm -hmm. time, right? So we could track that change through sort of standard public opinion and how more or less, there are some blips, but more or less, you know, it increases acceptance of LGBT rights increases over time. Um, and in particular, I'm interested in three uh, different sets of rights, which I call, um, you know, the pillars of the s- pillars of um, civil rights for LGBT people, namely, um, you know, being able to have sex in private, consensual adult sex in private, without fear of state retribution. Um, inclusion in the armed forces and um, same-sex marriage, you know marriage equality. So we know that people's attitudes about that changed over time in the United States and presumably in the world. but um, what we what political science wasn't able to tell us is why or how that happened. Mm-hmm. And so um, you know, in political science, the standard way to think about things through popular opinion, you know, public opinion, um, institutional discussions, you know, federalism, these kinds of things. Well, what I was interested in was what role does culture play, you know, in shifting the way that people think about things and particularly people in the mainstream, you know? So Mm -hmm. I wasn't so much interested in like, you know, when did Will and Grace come on or when did Ellen come out and those kinds of things. What I was more interested in is how did pop culture shift people's ideas about, say, in the Bond film series, sex and gender. And how did that affect the way, ultimately, that, um, or how did it open up some room for uh, military inclusion? You know, how did it change the voice Because, you know, as we know, sex and gender norms are very intimately tied to um, sexuality. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what I found was, so as we know, there's um, quite a few Bond films, I think 26, yeah, I watched them all sometimes numerous times. Oh, yes. I mean, you know, it was fun, but also uh, it gets tedious <laughs> sometimes, but it was fun. And what I was looking at was what happens in those films over time. How does James Bond change over time? Uh, you know, he's like a incorrigible misogynist all the way through, but like the way that he is a misogynist <laughs> changes over time. And in particular, the way that the uh, films present male masculinity um, yep. changes over time. And that, of course, relates them because they're binary, that relates to female femininity as well. So that's what I was interested in. And I, I have three stages that I sort of, you know, um, place the films in. The first is um, I call traditional. The second I call transitional. And the third I call concluding. So the first or traditional period contains like the um you know the Connery films and uh more and some and b uh, films and what happens in those films is you get a very traditional um representation of male masculinity so pretty much no holds barred bond does what mm-hmm. he wants with women you know he pinches them he slaps them he tickles them he demeans them he you know has sex with them any, anybody he wants and then sometimes even kills those people <laughs> you know it just mm-hmm. it's it's there are no limits on uh, what his, uh, um, you know, aggression is about both sexually and just generally and his violence too, you know? Um, so on the flip side, then women, of course, in those films, those early films, which um, constitute a good chunk of the film series, you know, almost two thirds um, that um, those the female femininity in those films, very passive, you know, the yeah. women are just there to, you know, be toyed with and so forth. And, or if they step out of line, possibly be killed. Okay. So that's the traditional thing. And in, and in, in, the traditional thing, yeah, there's not even like a lot of attention paid to homosexuality as they would have called it then, you know, it, to the extent it even comes up, it's kind of laughable, like, ha 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 James Bond is a homosexual. Are you kidding me? Come on. He's the last person in the world who would be like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and there's a reason for that, right? Because he represents the interests of the state as the agent, you know, secret agent and so forth. And um, in that period, in the traditional period, the, the interests of the state and the interests of um, homosexuals are diametrically opposed. So that's the first period. The second period. You know, something I wonder, sorry, I wonder
0: should, should we dig in? Why don't we dig in yeah, on a couple of examples exactly. from Go the traditional ahead. period? Good, Good, Good idea. idea. Some through? of the movies? Yeah,
1: yeah. So I it, think we wanted to talk about...
2: That'll, that'll put some, like, meat on the bone, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. I think we wanted to talk about Goldfinger um, yes. in, in particular. Okay. Um, I have here, Susan, as my first um, bullet point, laser-beamed genitals.
2: Yes! That's where, that's where I start, too.
1: Okay. I mean, okay. where where else can you start? <laughs> so so Bond laying... is... a famous This is, this is the, famous, the, the famous scene where Bond is... Kind of strapped to the yeah. table by, uh, by spread eagle, Goldfinger spread eagle, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's kind of a slow motion uh, laser beam mm-hmm. uh, w- wending its way inexorably towards the, towards his crotch, towards his crotch,
2: yes. yes.
1: And he's, I mean, I, I I don't know, is there some symbolism there? Or I couldn't quite <laughs> <understand>? <laughs> I well, it's help me the- decode what's going on here. <laughs> yeah, I
2: don't know, it's really hard. But that's that's the great thing about Bond, you know, it's so over the top. It, yeah. I mean. So, you know, I mean, even Bond is making fun of itself, even in those early days, you know. And um, that's part of the joy of the movies, you know, mm-hmm. that there's yeah. there's a kind of way in which it's very um, it takes for granted the norms of the time, but there is a little like opening there because it does kind of make fun of them as well, and that's a really important thing to say about pop culture, you know, that pop culture, I think, typically you know, represents or represents the the norms of the time, but also mm-hmm. there's a way in which pop culture can undermine them as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And- you know, I, I love that you said that, Susan, because I was just thinking about, I just rewatched Goldfinger last night. And there's definitely on occasion a kind of knowing playfulness yes. with Bond's masculinity. And I'm thinking of the opening scene in which he's asked why he's constantly carrying a gun and yeah. he responds, I have a little bit of an inferiority complex, <laughs> which is a great line, right? And yes. it struck me as very, I don't know if subversive, but at least playful for 1967 or eight, whenever that movie came out. 64. And
2: oh, Goldfinger 64. 64. Yeah. And,
0: uh, and also, but also very different than what we would see in future Portrayals of Bond, particularly the Moore movies, in which that kind of playfulness seems to have been um, evaporated or, or exhausted. Right? That's
2: why I think those mo- the Moore movies, when James, when Roger Moore becomes James Bond, they don't work as well because there's not that kind of playfulness and so forth. And mm-hmm. and it is interesting to think about how the different uh, actors who played Bond, what they bring to it. And you know, I don't know if that's the direction or what. You know, I'm not so much thinking about the production side and so forth. But like it is interesting that way. That's part of why Moore is more flat. And I think right. most people, you know, understand him to be the least interesting
1: of, yeah. of the bunch. You know, yeah, Connery is a kind of more brutal presence than than Moore is. I mean there's something grittier about Connery and something mm-hmm. I think more maybe more physically yeah. imposing and maybe saturnine in his in his features that maybe allows him to to play against mm-hmm. that uh, yeah, with, yeah. with a little playfulness in a way that wouldn't work for roger moore
2: i think that's right he's big and he's very hairy and you know he's just he cuts a different kind of um space in the films whereas roger moore i wouldn't say he's effeminate or anything like that but i just think he he he's not the sort of stereotypical male masculine dark you know sort of Hairy yeah. guy that you might expect to see. course, sort of- right. being British, I would
1: pick up on a on a class difference immediately. Yeah, the Roger oh, Moore right. seems like a, a, a person from a higher social class than Sean Connery, which which would carry pejorative connotations sometimes of you know effeminacy versus versus right. toughness.
0: Yeah. So I'm just going to ask. So do yeah. we think that that's part of what's going on here in the portrayal of Moore? Is that w- there's a kind of safety in Connery being able to be playful? with his masculinity that would come across as uh as threatening were it to be seen in roger moore's portrayal right um, yeah
2: i don't know and, i mean and, and like, therefore
0: for the time unacceptable right
2: Yeah. it could be i mean i think you know steven coming from that culture maybe you know that's something that you would have a better feel for i don't know mm-hmm. you know just a sort of um I don't know what I guess a kind of eliteness or something a different a different mm-hmm. aspect of eliteness. Yeah,
1: and the, the more, more to be a to be a credible action hero, he would have had to guard against coming across as just a mm. just a kind of tough. Um, you know, which would made it made it harder for him to make those kind of um, as we say playful allusions uh-huh. to anything other than a, a very virile mainstream <laughs> uh, yeah. masculinity. I right. I also have Downey well, and I, I I wonder if I could ask you, Susan, what what should we make of of the character Pussy Galar?
2: Mm. Oh, I love Pussy Galar. First of all, that's part of what makes this film um, really good, and it was um, somewhat critically acclaimed. It was definitely really popular, and it was somewhat critically acclaimed as far as Bond movies go. You know, people are very snooty about Bond movies, but they I you know they're good. Some of them are very good. So part of what makes it good is that Pussy Galore, first of all, let us just pause on the name. <laughs> <laughs> Pussy Galore. Okay. You know, and there's others in the Bond films, you know, Xena on a top, yeah. and Honey Rider, all this kind of yes. stuff. Right. There's so.
0: These are the single a, entendres. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good one. I mean, that's. That is. Watch so the.
1: Cool. But Goldeneye is the uh, the honor top. I just rewatched that because I knew we were going to talk about it. That, that is a bonkers character. Is <laughs> yeah. so it? a method of killing people. is squeezing them between it. And this was it between her, her thighs. But this was like the late 90s or something, wasn't it? I mean, like, absolutely insane. Uh, Who came up with that?
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I mean,
1: Get to Brosnan and, and Goldeneye. I didn't mean to derail us. We were on We were on Pussy Galore. It, it was, there might be a hint of um, symbolism in the name.
2: Yeah. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> so Pussy Galore, I mean, you know, she's really an interesting character, first of all, because Honor Blackman is a really good actress. Um, but also she presents, Pussy presents as um, female feminine, but she hints at lesbianism, mm-hmm. you know. And her boss, um, Goldfinger, who is the enemy in this movie, wants to wants her to woo Bond. And she is. No, she is not having that. Right. And Mm -hmm. um, Bond also, you know, he flirts with her incessantly and so forth. And she says pretty early on to him, um, you know, your charms are wasted on me.
0: Yeah, I'm immune. Yeah,
2: Yeah. I'm immune. I'm immune. That's right. Mm -hmm. I'm immune. And later we'll see that when we talk about um uh in the transitional period with pierce brosnan that m played by judy dench picks up that line and she said Mm. like don't waste your time with that stuff you know with me same thing but um pussy galore is more closely i think related to um you know lesbianism she has this girl gang you know mm-hmm. she she exhibits some masculine traits in the sense of she pilots you know these these airplanes and so forth and the interesting thing about that is is that um because she is fe- i would argue because she is a uh, female feminine bond is able to convert her right so it's kind of like in those days the classic scene or like something you would almost see like in a um in a soap opera like in the 70s or 80s you know where the the male character, like you know, oh, just forcefully like kisses one of the women, yeah. and they're resisting at first, but then of course they like fold into his, you know, charming masculinity and stuff, and you know, have satisfying sex or whatever. So it's very traditional in the sense of like it, you know, it's not too far a stretch to say that it's positioning forceful sex. Um, you know, maybe even like, you know, what we would now think of as rape or something like that as, um, you know, something that women really want if they just, you know, Mm -hmm. like settle back and relax in this case, literally in the hay, you know, in the barn, you know what I mean? So, and it also suggests that, um, you know, he can convert lesbians, at least female Mm -hmm. feminine lesbians, you know, in other films where there are women who are, um, female, present as female masculine, um, you know, those like Rose,
1: Rosa Klebb, right?
2: Yes, exactly. Number three, mm-hmm. she gets, you know, she dead meat, man. She gets killed, you know, because right. that, mm-hmm. that kind of thing cannot survive in Bond's universe.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. it is. I mean, the point you make was actually had it in, you know, in a sidebar in my notes here about the, how many of Bond's sexual encounters during this period are, are initiated through what we would now consider to, legally to be sexual assault. Yeah. Right, by him forcing himself on, and but it's yeah. played in the pop culture at the time, and it's not just Bond, as yeah. right. you know. The, this this is almost doing the women a favor, right? The women really yeah. want the man, but can't quite bring themselves to to say that. And the and the kind of almost gentlemanly thing to do is to to kind of push through that reticence. And it happens in um, the, because I teach this movie a lot; it comes up every time I show the movie. It happens in Blade Runner. Yeah. There's a scene where Harrison wow. Ford. Yeah. Forces himself on Sean Penn, mm-hmm. and Sean, you know, and it's it's played in the movie as Sean Penn is a replicant who's not properly kind of in touch with her emotions, and therefore he is doing her a great favor of bringing her to full of yeah. humanity. Yeah, right. And, but you show it to to anyone nowadays, and the students all instantly object. Like, what you know, th- this is rape. This is yeah. a coerced sexual encounter. Yeah. Um, and well, all of the Bond films seem to well, seem and to have even
0: that. more acutely with regard to Sean Connery, it's hard not to think about his portrayal of the main character in the in Hitchcock's film *Marnie*, right, in which he's explicitly, mm. right. explicitly rapes. Um, uh, I believe it was Tippi Hendren, who's yeah. the the female lead. Um, but again, it's presented as being in her best interest, right? Um, and that it's that it's somehow important for her to break through some kind of psychological block that yeah. is uh, making her life miserable.
1: Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Pussy in the um, in the novel is explicitly, you know, uh, it's it's explicitly said she's lesbian, and it's sort of hindered at mm. in right. in the movie, which is which and is interesting. Is in time the time few, time. Yeah, there's a few instances like mm-hmm. that, and some things in the novel are said more explicitly, and so, uh, some of the. If, it, if it's imaginable, some of the kind of racism and misogyny is even more explicit mm-hmm. sometimes in the in the novel versions in yeah. the films. Yeah.
2: And Sean Connery was asked about it in real life, right? So there were um, interviews mm-hmm. done with him and he was like, what? I don't see anything wrong with that. you know in this period, that's what he said. Yeah. He was asked yeah. later about it in the what I call a transitional period later on and he was he still he, he adhered to that. And it wasn't until very late in life he was having an interview with Barbara Walters. And she asked him again and he finally, you know, conceded that that wasn't correct. But it took a long time for that to happen because I think it was just such a deep seated assumption, you know, in mainstream culture. And because these are, you know, British films and we can just assume in like Anglo culture, you know, and maybe in other places too, I don't know. But, you know, so it's pretty intense. And it's, it's, I mean, it's very telling that your students can see that, you know, right off the bat. It's a it's a big shift. One of the things that's interesting also about the Bond movies is that <clears throat> even these old ones, you know, sometimes when you watch older movies, they're very like slow to unfold and so forth. But mm-hmm. because because these movies are very action oriented, you know, there's a lot of chase scenes. That the, the plot, you know, it's not heavy on plot, you know, and um, you know they're moving around to different settings and so forth. They kind of, I think they kind of hold up in that way. So they don't Mm. hold up in terms of the norms, you know, that they present, uh, you know, sex and gender norms for sure. But they do hold up in that way because there's a kind of pacing that's very quick. And I wonder, you know, if that would like hold this, it seems to hold the student's attention a little better, even though, you know, some of the norms are really messed up in contemporary understanding.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. There is a contemporary pacing around them that's that's easier to swallow than other yeah. movies of the period. I wonder. We have to take a break in a couple of minutes, but I wonder if we might touch on on a Roger Moore movie. Yeah, and on the I think we said the Spy Who Loved Me might be a, a good yeah. one to. Yeah discuss i think on our end jeff as i remember this wasn't it me i think you didn't want to talk about roger moore at all um <laughs> <laughs> i suggested he was i don't care for, don't care for the yeah. franchise we, we might hit yeah. one of them yeah and i suggested the spy who loved yeah. me and i think what i was thinking of was um particularly the uh anya masova character the agent triple x mm-hmm. character
0: mm-hmm. who
1: in some i mean maybe, maybe you don't agree with this susan or maybe there's something to it in some ways prefigures what would become a a, a development in the Bond movies of Bond's antagonist or the, or the Bond girl, you know, the, the kind of antagonist slash later love interest being increasingly portrayed as um, somewhat professionally equal to him. Right. yes, and, and, and having, having her own set of skills and, and motivations. And, and I wonder if you think agent triple X kind of falls into that. And if, if I've kind of hit on something there.
2: I do. I really do. So, so you know, as often happens in categories of analysis, they're not completely airtight, right? Like there are some shifts that you can see, like we could say a foreshadowing that's going to happen with regularity in future movies, you know? So I do agree with that. And um, interestingly, you know, they both promise to kill each other. So, you mm-hmm. know, the, the you know Russian agent promises to kill Bond and Bond promises to kill her, Anna, Anna Silva. And, um, um, you know, neither do in the end, right? So there's this kind of under the reason why she wants to kill Bond in part, you know, apart from being Russian, is because um, he kills her lover, you know, and Mm -hmm. she's, she's quite angry about that and um but they don't wind up killing each other in the end the interesting thing about it is they end up where all the you know of those early bond movies end which is you know floating away in a boat or in a train or something you know um in a clinch you know and so there is a little bit of slippage but it's it follows the plot sorry go ahead jeff
0: no exactly that's exactly it the the third act uh she just disappears entirely right she becomes the stereotypical traditional damsel in distress at that point yeah and suddenly all of the the promise of the first two acts with regard to a, you know a portrayal of some kind of equity right with in intellectual and and sort of as you say professional mm-hmm. capacity it all just dissolves into the standard trope right yeah. um
2: so any hint that was there it's very of
0: Last third, by the way, is so male. I don't think there's, there are hundreds and hundreds of characters in the third act. And I don't think there's a single female
1: on screen.
2: Doesn't pass the Bechdel test.
1: (laughs) No. No. (laughs) (laughs) No. Um, So I I think we should uh, just take a a quick break here. And and that kind of concludes the the traditional period. And we'll see, uh, do things change in the the next period, the the transitional period? Sounds good and we're back with professor susan burgess and we're moving into now a different period of james bond's portrayal of sex Mm -hmm. of gender of masculinity of of femininity uh what what the professor calls a transitional period which runs i think in movie terms from the living daylights to die another day or in actor terms Mm -hmm. from timothy dalton to pierce brosnan i think um by the time of uh, A View to a Kill, yes. the, the Roger Moore phase had, had perhaps, Ro- Roger had perhaps run his race at this point. <laughs>
0: the, <laughs> the desperate desire to portray him as still virile becomes too much to bear.
1: Yeah, it's pretty what handy with now? the old Zimmer point. frame whacking the villains. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but yes, it, uh, perhaps time for another actor. And we, yeah. we get, uh, I think, a very good and yeah. a very interesting actor in Timothy Dalton, uh, yeah. who, who I think, brings something different to the role. I wonder, Susan, if you agree with that.
2: Yeah, I do agree. Um, so he leads us into this, what I call the transitional period, which is characterized by, you know, not just traditional norms, pretty much completely dominating regarding sex and gender and homosexuality, but um, new understandings, right? So like kind of uh, challenger or alternative ways of thinking about sex and gender sort of come into the picture and, um, you know, that happens in real life, too, you know, that that this is a period of time in which people are starting to uh, become more aware of, you know, mm-hmm. issues of women's equality and so forth. And, and, um, and, you know, this kind of opens up some maybe initially kind of open secret space for, um, you know, queer stuff to enter in the discussion, if in somewhat of a joking way still. Mm-hmm. So... Dalton, he's really interesting. First of all, yeah, he's a pretty good actor. Yeah. You know, especially after the uh the long duray of Roger Moore. <laughs> Let's say. <laughs> um, he's a pretty good actor. And, you know, James Bond starts to change, you know, there's strong domesticity kind of stuff that mm-hmm. starts to happen. It doesn't really take, and that makes sense because it's not really, um, it's a little early for that kind of thing. So it can't really you know, persist. Um, But that's kind of what the transitional period is like, right? So there's kind of, you know, if you think about it politically, there's kind of uh, a long period of kind of going back and forth between wins and losses from the perspective of, you know, um, striving towards greater equality. So... There are some things that happen to bond in this period that do suggest, uh, you know, a break in the traditional sex and gender norms and male dominance. But there are also uh, many things that happen during this period in these films that reinforce those traditional norms. And that's the transitional period. That's kind of what it's characterized by this kind of conflict, you know. So for things to change in politics, you need conflict. You know, you need conflicting discourse and so forth, conflicting ideas. Um, you know, in real politics, then, you know, that sometimes begets, um, you know, new coalitions and so forth mm-hmm. that form around those ideas, new policies. But in the films, what we see is just the the character changes and uh, the Bond character changes, but also the women in the films change too. Right. So it's very interesting.
1: Yeah. And I think in, in Living Daylights, uh, Dalton's Bond is Maybe more vulnerable, a little, mm-hmm. a little more yes. caring. I mean, he, yes. does, he doesn't in cold blood kill uh, Cara Millavie, yeah. Um, yeah, which I think maybe Con- Connery's Bond might might have done, right? Um she's a, you know, a, a, is is she his sole love interest in the in the movie, or or at yeah. least he pursues her with with more consistency than Bond would. Would typically right. see one He's, woman I in think she's
2: right. the soul. I think she is the sole one in this movie. I think that's he, right,
0: because he first encounters her at the very beginning of the movie. Right,
2: right. Yes. Yeah. Right. He he doesn't kill her, he shoots the rifle out of her hands rather than kill her straight out. Um, you know, she's a KGB officer again, and he um, you know, isn't willing to do that right then. Also, um, you may recall that he has this discussion with Money Penny. You know the clerk or the secretary. I guess they would have mm-hmm. said at the time in the office with whom he has this long, bond. He has this long flirtation, right, throughout all the movies, and um, she, you know, sort of like slyly says something like, "Oh, that girl must be really talented." And he says, "You know, I assure you, money, Penny, my, my interest is solely purely professional." Um, yeah. But but he does wind up sleeping with her, and she. But it's this new thing where she's the sole object of his attention, right? That, that comes to, you know, bear greater fruit in the Craig period later on, which we'll talk about, but, um, you know, but at the same time, as is characteristic of the um, transitional period, he's still very patronizing towards her at times. Mm -hmm. He's, um, still sometimes not super attached to her. Um, and, you know, in the traditional way, they, the movie ends with them in a clinch, you know? So there's, it, it's pretty, it's a good transitional film, a good example, because it shows you those, um, I don't know, those different elements and how they can fit together at the same time.
1: Mm-hmm. Also, I think living daylights, I mean, I said facetiously, you know, that, the 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 Daniel Craig lookalike work was, <laughs> was my entry into, into Bond, um, now I think about it, I wonder if Living Daylights actually was my entree to Bond. I would have been mm. the right age, but also at that time I was a huge Aha fan, and I, you know the the, uh, yeah, take rock band, on me. the Norwegian band and who who did the theme tune. And uh. so I think actually my entree to Bond was probably the song The Living Daylights, which yeah. I sort of retro retroactively discovered was attached to
0: <laughs> uh-huh.
1: to to, to, a, to a movie. Yeah. So I'm fond of that movie for for that reason. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a pretty good movie. It holds up well. I mean, the the one geopolitical element that is really sort of fascinating in retrospect is the celebration of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, which yeah. these days doesn't look so good. No, uh, no. Right. But that was that was something I had not remembered at mm. all until I went back and rewatched it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, right. That's interesting. The aha thing is interesting too, because- That happens, you know, especially with the songs, you know, the opening songs and so Mm -hmm. forth. But there's all this intermingling of other kinds of pop culture, too. And just, you know, not necessarily even pop culture, but just cultural elements. You know, that's part of um, the Bond films being on brand is they have to really Mm -hmm. be on the cutting edge of that kind of stuff, or at Mm -hmm. least, you know, the cutting edge as, you know, 35 plus year old males imagine it. You know?
1: right. right. And, and yeah. p- part of that intertextuality, certainly in the traditional period, was the, the, the presentation of some or all of the Bond girls in Playboy or in you know yeah. other right. kind of racy photo mm-hmm. shoots as part of the, the yeah. kind of publicity cycle. Yeah.
0: But I mean, it's really interesting to think about the Bond theme songs, because sometimes there's a disjuncture. I, I agree, Susan, that there is this self-conscious attempt by the directors, the producers, um, to keep it current. But sometimes there's a disjuncture. I think about A View to a Kill, the movie we were just mm-hmm. uh, celebrating. I don't know, denigrating, uh, however we <laughs> want to describe it. And of course, the theme song from that is uh, the simila- the same title by Duran Duran, yeah. which is, a, you know, a really different type of aesthetic from what we get in the movie, right? And so there are occasionally these dis- disjunctures in which one form of the cultural one cultural form it seems to be operating at a slightly different pace, right, yes. or a slightly different moment in the overall trajectory of, um, you know, the possibility than the other one is. Yeah, right.
2: They kind of well, miss the f- mark f- sometimes. Sorry, go
1: ahead. Go ahead
2: no, it's okay. They kind of miss the mark sometimes, and and some this mm-hmm. doesn't this isn't a total explanation, but sometimes I think part of it has to do with there's a there are Uh, Between some of the movies, there are longer gaps between the last movie and the current one, you know, and I think sometimes it's just harder for the um, franchise to manage. Um, Yeah. What were you going to say? sorry.
1: There was the famous time in the Daniel Craig era where they they thought they might have Radiohead do the the, thong, the song for Spectre, and they came up with it, and it was you know the, impenetrable the, the usual bleeps <laughs> yeah. and noises, and they were like, I don't know maybe we get some someone else to have a crack at this maybe, and
2: <laughs> perhaps perhaps not. Where's Adele? <laughs>
1: exactly, exactly. Yeah. So t- 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 I just wanted to touch very briefly on the on the second Dalton movie, License to Kill, because I think you have a, you made an interesting point, Susan, in the book that. That there's some kind of displays of kind of unreformed masculinity um, in *License to Kill*, but it's but it's sort of refigured as indicative of of a, of a lesser. Div- I mean, it's it's, it's refigured in a, in a way that's sort of racist or culturalist rather than than progressive. But but Bond yeah. says something like, "It's okay to behave like that down here when he's in Latin America." Right. Of course, I would not, from the developed first world, be be behaving mm-hmm. in this unreconstructed. Traditionalist period masculinity, but but people still down here, so do, people still do down here. So you know, yeah, I'll add, uh, once more for old time's sake.
2: <laughs> yes, right, and I mean that is interesting, right? So it's a kind of like um opening then in a certain kind of way with the suggestion of you know the superiority of Anglo culture and all that, and also. You know, many other people have commented on this, just the, you know, rampant colonialism that mm-hmm. runs, you know, throughout right. um, these movies, you know, it's just a, and um, there we see, as you said, Stephen, you know, there we see the way that it manifests in sex and gender norms, just in a, um, you know, I mean, that's something that people still talk about in that way, sort of unreflectively, you know, the machismo, of whatever, mm-hmm. you know. It's really interesting, you know, it's kind of a distancing from those, that kind of way of being while at the same time still, you know, replicating that and replicating colonialism, you know. Yeah. Which and it's, it's maybe worth pointing out him. as well,
0: right? The Ian Fleming, it's mm-hmm. worth pointing out as well, Ian Fleming, the author, right? I mean, the, the golden eye is famously that his kind of plantation estate that he had in Jamaica. Yeah. He was a, pretty unreconstructed British imperialist. Yes,
2: uh,
1: yes.
0: And a lot of what's going on in the Bond movies is this kind of a attempt, or in the Bond books, I should say, in the Bond books, is this attempt to you know, make like one more foray right uh, into British imperialism. Just th- This is what you're missing out on. These are the new dangers that the disruption of the British Empire brings about on the world stage. Well,
2: totally. It's very wistful in a certain kind of way. You know and part of that wistfulness has to do with and probably part of what you know attracts certain audiences to it is the wistfulness about this older form of male masculinity when you know men were able to you know do as they please and so forth you know without even having to you know think about it or apologize or something you know yeah so and i think yeah. that that's also the case for you know the empire and so forth yeah, yeah. for sure yeah
1: so pierce brosnan uh, it appears in GoldenEye, um, and that there there are some big changes. Yes, now, yeah. Uh, would, would you Would you agree? <laughs>
2: I totally would agree, and um, I like Pierce Brosnan's Bond. You know, I, I think he does a good job with it. He um, he also, in a certain way, going back to what we we're talking about about Roger Moore before, he also, in a certain way, you know, he's not as um, traditionally masculine as. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sean Connery's Bond, you know, he doesn't have those physical features and so forth, but somehow he's not as—I um I don't know what—you <laughs> know, sort of borderline of feet or something in the way that Moore is. You know, he he fits it better. It's—I think part of it is it's this kind of cheekiness. The cheekiness is back again, yeah. you know.
1: And- yeah, and there, there is in, in in British terms. I mean, I wonder. I, I haven't thought this through enough to, you know, to have it as a well-developed point. But of course, Connery's Scottish, play, yes, playing an Englishman. Right. Yes, right. and Pierce Brosnan is Irish, yeah. playing playing an Englishman, and Ro- Roger Moore is upper-class yeah.
0: <laughs> English. I, I was just going to ask you about yeah. that. Do you think there's something happening there? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think there's a there's a there's an a, an ness mm-hmm. in Connery and, distance, and Brosnan, kind of distance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. that th- th- that is that is impossible for them to completely hide. Mm-hmm. And that would always make them somewhat of an outsider to, to, to real kind of mm-hmm. hardcore inner English mm-hmm. um, culture. And, and that, that outsiderness could come from, from social class for other,
2: right.
1: uh, for, for, for other English people, or it could come from not being part of the core metropole in, yeah. the, in the, last remnant yeah. of, of the, of the, of the kind of Imperial um, configuration. Yeah. And of course, you know, Daniel Craig. I think is. Um, I actually don't know his personal background. He's yeah. definitely English, yeah. and I, th- I think is is quite sort of well to do. Yeah. Um. But and and I and I don't mean to kind of kind of jump ahead to Daniel Craig, but but he is established also as something of an outsider to to wealth and privilege. And I think for, there's the famous scene yeah. with Vespa Lind where they kind mm-hmm. of psychoanalyze each other mm-hmm. sort of instant in, instantaneously, and she she just makes this point very directly, right? That you clearly uh, went to, moved in elite circles and went to elite schools and you have that very expensive suit. So you clearly know how Mm -hmm. to dress, but you wear it with such disdain that, you know, uh, you're obviously not, you know, really comfortable with that identity. So I wonder if something of that is going on with Brosnan.
0: Well, and in, in Skyfall, we learned that the ancestral home is in Scotland.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly That's true. So uh, well, uh, he, strong women which in which disdains.
2: we'll get sorry, to Skyfall, but which stains? Right. Yeah, yeah. Anyway,
1: That yeah, um, blows up. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. So, uh, strong he says, women. I mean, he
2: does. I never really liked it, which is a commentary on you know the traditional as well. You know, I never really yeah. liked that place. You know. Yeah. Uh. Anyway, buckle, and I'll. So this is 1995, and and this is one of the films where there's the biggest gap between the previous film and this film. So there's a six-year period, and that doesn't happen again until the very last film because of the pandemic and so forth. Um, And it's also the first film, um, you know, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And so, you know, that puts into context some of the comments that um, James's new boss... Still M, but Judy Dench now, who's a woman, um, in which she challenges his sexist behavior. Right, so both um, M and Money Penny are, you know, challenging in the transitional way. Like it's not a complete challenge, but it's, uh, you know, it's there and it's becoming more pronounced than what we had seen earlier. Um, and indeed, um, you know, in MI Six, um, there was a woman head at that time, so it was kind of art imitates mm-hmm. life going on.
1: Stella Remington.
2: Yeah, right. And um, you know, in I guess what happens is that um money penny and Bond is flirting with Money Penny again, as he always does in the outer office. And, you know, she says basically, like, hey, you better watch that. Like this is a dangerous thing. And and she I believe she uses the term sexual harassment, you know, which is a mm-hmm. kind of new term for that time. Um, which, um, in the United States context, anyway, came to prominence during the, um, hearings for, you know, uh, now chief, or, excuse me, Supreme Court justice, Clarence Thomas.
0: Only in his dreams.
2: Susan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I think that ship sailed for him, boy. And, um, you know, so, um, it's interesting to have that as part of the bond film, right? So that money penny introduces the possibility of just the concept of sexual harassment and the possibility that, that, you know, that's what bonds about in some way. So it's a, mm-hmm. it's kind of indictment of him in a certain kind of way. And right after that is the famous scene where, um, you know, bond goes into M's office, Judy Dench, and mm-hmm. she basically, you know, takes him to task for his sexist behavior. And they don't like each other. You know, they start out not liking each other at all. And, and she says, you know, you don't like me. You think I'm a bean counter. And, you know, she says that's okay. Cause I think you're, you know, a misogynist, sexist dinosaur a relic of the cold war. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it is very transitional in that way. She's very aggressive. Yeah. She's willing to take him on. And, um, and he doesn't like it, you know, he's not used to it and he doesn't like it. He's sort of put off by it. Um, Again, like I said earlier, she she has this line that's much like Pussy Galore's line, you know, your, your charms are wasted on me. And it's sort of an interesting line in that context because she is a little bit older than him and so forth. So, you know, it's not necessarily that that's going on. But nonetheless, she takes him to task. And um, but she also says in the same scene, you know, if you think I don't have the balls to send a man out to die, you're wrong. Yeah. So she asserts her aggressiveness, you know, contrary to the female feminine brand and so forth. Um, so it's very interesting, you know, and, and um, it is clear by that film, by the time Brosminton comes on the scene, that we're really in a different kind of period with respect to Bond's behavior and with respect to the women around him. Right. Because this is the period of time also where the Bond girls become they also become more aggressive, more, not exactly Mm -hmm. equal, but they're more able to like hold their own, you know, in the world. Mostly, sometimes not, but mostly. And um, it kind of aligns with um, in the United States, uh, you know, what's going on with um, uh, gay world in terms of military inclusion, because this is the Mm -hmm. period of don't ask, don't tell, which is kind of like, hey, you can be, you can be gay, but stay in the closet if you want to be in the armed forces. And that's pretty much how M approaches Bond. Like, hey, I don't care for your sexual aggressiveness. I don't like what you're doing with women, but you know, just, I don't want to hear anything about it. Just don't ask, don't Mm -hmm. tell, you know, you, you keep that shit in the closet and, you know, and um, we'll be fine. So yeah, it's a really interesting film, and I actually think the plot's pretty good, if somewhat convoluted. Yeah. It's hard to follow in parts, yeah. but I think it's right. a pretty yes. good film.
1: I really like the distinction you drew there that the, that what's going on is a is a separation between um, kind of sexuality and the workplace, and yeah. you know, Em yeah. is presenting a different challenge yeah. to Bond because she she is not a. She's not a confounding female who 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 is interested on in or, or is available to him as a sexual right. conquest, yeah. and so that standard way of neutralizing pesky quote unquote pesky yes. femininity yeah. is, is not available. She's actually a a fact of bureaucratic life who is legitimately yeah. properly and you know in in all senses entitled to exercise authority over him, which exactly. which he must obey. Right. Yeah, he, I mean, he's used to that from men, right? Right, being ordered around. Yes, but he's maybe right. not used to it from women, and he's also not used to he, he can't just patronize her as a stupid woman go away right. because she she clearly is is so formidable that that's not going to work.
0: Right. She, Judy Dench's M is a, a totally new character in the James Bond universe, a totally new type of character, and you're right; it's one that Bond cannot exercise authority over in any way. Yeah,
2: that, that's exactly right. But not only that, but he can't exercise his own authority with her because the basis of his authority is that traditional model of that aggressiveness yes. and so forth. You know, so that's yes. so she doesn't just um, passively accept his authority because she doesn't accept the premise of it, you know, which is yes. that old time sex and gender stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, excellent. So, I think we will um, take another break at this point, uh, oh. now that we've, we've moved through the transitional period. Um, and when we come back, I think we'll talk about the, the concluding stage of uh, Bond's portrayal of, of kind of shifting norms and, yeah. and maybe how they've led to shifting, shifting rights yeah. In, yeah. Uh, in, in political terms uh, with Daniel Craig. Yes. And we are back. Uh, talking about James Bond with uh, Professor Susan Burgess, and we're going to talk about now what the professor calls the concluding stage um, of the of the, the certainly the Bond franchise mm-hmm. so far, uh, the Daniel Craig era, Casino Royale to No Time to Die. Um, Craig, there was a lot of controversy about the casting of Daniel Craig. Um, people said he's too too blonde, mm. too short. Um, you know, can't can't really be a, an effective James Bond. I, certainly for me he's the by some distance the most effective yes. James Bond in every way including physically. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I agree. He's uh you know, I maybe that was some sort of, you know, uh PTSD over the Roger Moore period or something. They didn't want to have another like weak Bond guy or something, but uh, yeah, I think he works quite well. I mean, it's hard to tease out, right? Because, you know, he's our contemporary and so forth. So, yeah. you know, it vibes with our understanding of like the social world and stuff and, and the pacing and so forth. But I do think he's quite good. He's quite a good actor. I think the stories are quite well developed. Um, you know, in those early movies in the, particularly the traditional period, they were still developing, uh, you know, the plot lines and the characters and so forth. And so, you know, they could be kind of uneven, especially once more comes on the scene. But even in the Sean Connery period, you know, there's a lot of unevenness in those early movies because they're still sort of figuring it out. By the time we get to uh, Daniel Craig's Bond. You know, th- it's like they're 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 not going from zero to 60 in the movies. They're ready. Like, you know, they're ready in third gear and ready to go. You know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. One, one thing I wanted to dig in on was um, uh Craig's physical presentation—I mean, his his physicality, which mm-hmm. uh, which I've always found really startling—and mm-hmm. um, I've seen earlier Daniel Craig movies, and he was always a, a lean actor, yes. uh, but he packed on a ton mm-hmm. of muscle oh, uh, so for, for Casino yeah. Royale, yeah. and I think it's it's indicative of a a, a number of things, um, many of which are uh, I think it very very closely tied to to the concerns of your book. Um, one thing I think is just. Ch- change in male beauty standards, or, yeah. or change in yeah. the way that male bodies are presented on screen, and in in one sense, it's it's sort of a progressive change, I, I, I suppose. In that there is now a, a, a camera gaze on the male body yeah. that yes. was previously, you know, reserved purely for feminine bodies. O- only females could carry. The erotic weight of the uh, of the camera mm. uh, where whereas craig's body is often portrayed in a sort of leering way or, or a way that you're yeah. supposed to view it as as beautiful i suppose the the flip side of that is is how it always was when female bodies were portrayed in that way <laughs> yes. which is that 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 beauty standard is an entirely unrealistic yeah. and unattainable one that that young men would be ill-advised unless they're genetically and in other right. ways assisted. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, uh, to to sort of pursue. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think those are. That's really interesting. I, the one caveat I would say is in terms of American popular culture. Anyway, it would have been the Sylvester Stallone movies of the nineteen eighties. Oh yeah,
2: Rambo and all that. That
0: are the Rambo's, the Rockies, in which absolutely the camera is gazing upon yes. the, the male. The idealized male physical form, yeah. But there's a kind of unknowing homoeroticism, it seems to me, in yeah, those totally. movies. That's very different, as we'll talk about in the Craig movies. But yeah, yeah I, mean, I mean, the physicality of Craig. What do you what do you make of that, Susan?
2: I yeah, I think you guys are both making very good points because if you think about the early movies, especially you know they have Craig in those beach scenes, you know where he's yeah. like sort of doesn't have a top on, he's just kind of. You know, walking or wading through the water or something. And, you know, we're all looking at his like incredibly cut, you know, muscling and mm-hmm. chest and so forth. And those, that role would have been, you know, Ursula Andrus or something in earlier mm-hmm. times, you know, in the white suit or something, like yeah. sort of on the beach or you know even in the transitional period holly berry yeah. you know in the orange I mean, susan
0: isn't that scene itself in casino royale a throwback and subversion to the exact same scene in doctor no with yeah. ursula andres yeah.
2: yeah i do and, think and
1: that. it's it's actually framed in you know the cinematography or the, or the or the composition is there's um the one of the bond girls kind of riding on screen yeah. on, on top of a horse in a bikini mm-hmm. and you're led to believe this this is the physical object mm-hmm. of uh, desire that we're being mm-hmm. presented with, and then immediately you cut to <laughs> so Daniel Craig, right. who who blows her out of the water to yeah. mix metaphor, because Craig is coming out yeah. of the water, but, <laughs> but is the body to yeah. whom yeah. to whom your yeah. your you, your sort of gaze is yeah. is sort of irretrievably drawn right. at that yeah. point. So yeah. I
2: think that is right, and and so it is interesting, you know. So there's a couple different things. One is the sort of fashion standards, change and all that, you know, metrosexuality and all that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um. But also, yeah, I mean, there is a kind of um, homoeroticism to it that is um, intentional and permitted. Yeah. You know, it gives men and women, I guess, looking at him, but also men permission to gaze at him in that way and to, um, you know, have that kind of potentially. You know, it doesn't have to be um, full-on homosexuality, but just that sort of homoerotic desire. And you know, the the thing about Bond has always been. That, you know, um, you know, women want to sleep with him, men want to be him. Mm -hmm. So then that means that, you know, how we understand what men's desires are have changed now, you know, and Bond, Bond, the new Bond, Daniel Craig Bond embodies that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I I think later in, uh, oh, sorry, in in your book, you analyze, you know, in some depth, a a later scene in the same movie in Casino Royale. Which, which also focuses on uh, Craig's body, mm-hmm. and, he, and he's not only stripped, stripped to the waist, but but from the waist as well, tied tied in the famous torture scene yep. um, to to a chair with the with the bottom yeah. uh, uh, cut yep. out, yep. Uh, and, and being sort of tortured. Yep. I'm kind of waving a rope around here, sort of metaphorically in my yep. in my hand here uh, by Lashif. I mean, what 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 should we make of that? Of that I scene? mean,
2: first of all, he's in a dungeon, right? So it's pretty S&M-y. Mm-hmm. You know, the, mm-hmm. the setting is quite SM. and um, you know, he, it's no longer laughable, you know, that he right. would be in such a situation, but he is cheeky about it. And, you know, he's just turns the tables on that guy, LaShift you know, they keep, yeah. you know, he's sort of like, well, now the world will know that you've been, you know, like etching my balls or something yeah. like that. I think it's what he said. Like. So fun story about that. One time I was at, um, the Midwest Political Science Association Conference, which is very stodgy in some ways. It's like APSA on steroids, you know, and um, it was eight o'clock in the morning panel. And I was showing these clips from like that dungeon scene and so forth. And people were just kind of like, (laughs) (laughs) But I was just like, hey, man, just play it straight because, you know, you never know who's in the audience. So it turns out that um, someone was there from, you know, The Atlantic magazine uh-huh. and doing a story on a bunch of things that were going on at, uh, uh, at the Midwest. Why? I don't know. But they were there. And so, yeah, I wound up in The Atlantic with this very sort of racy scene from Bond. You know, my moment, my moment in the periodical sun was about the S&M <laughs> scene in Bond.
1: I mean, my, my, my general feeling i don't know if an experience i don't know if it's been the same for you susan is the the, the more you get away from mainstream political science the more likely you are to interest oh, <laughs> <on, yeah. all, laughs> no, no, oh, other in what you're talking about
2: <laughs> no absolutely 100 for sure <laughs> yeah. um but yeah that is interesting and then there's another scene um in subsequent movie where they're kind of like back and forth thing with um, knives, it's very phallic, you know, there's like shadows in the background and so forth. And so there's a lot throughout the entire um, D- Daniel Craig period, there's a lot of homoeroticism. And of course, you know, it also, um, you know, he is taunted by Silva in a later movie. Yeah. Um, where where like very, in Skyfall, that's right, where he's touching his face, like kind of caressing him mm-hmm. and so forth and kind of taunting him, like in a sort of way that suggests, um, you know, pretty, pretty directly homosexuality. And he is not taken aback by it at all, right? So his response mm-hmm. is, you know, what makes you think I haven't had that, you know, so he's mm-hmm. willing to embrace it in a way. Um, and he did talk about that, you know, in the popular press, like, you know, why not? You know, like, this is what Bond would be like, or why not even, you know, maybe the next, maybe James Bond will be, you know, uh, a queer or something like that.
1: Yeah. And, and, but I mean, that's very interesting. And that is the, the the central and and maybe one of the only kind of overt references to the possibility of Bond not being completely straight is the, Mm -hmm. is the interaction with silver. And it's, it, it's ambiguous in both terms. In both cases, we've talked about the the Chief torture scene and the and the scene with Silver. Yeah, is, is Bond overtly saying, you know, or or, or or directly hinting, yes, I may have had these experiences, or is he kind of doing so strategically to throw the the, the kind yeah. of antagonist mm-hmm. off, or it's kind of a a power play? Either way, it's still significant though, in that this is something that Bond is is able to say without his character, without there being the fear that his character is in some way. Yeah. Yes. undercut or made less, less masculine. I mean, it doesn't even enter your head. It's, a, it's a power it's, move, it's if anything. Right.
2: Correct. Or that it's laughable as it was in the traditional period. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that's a big shift. That's a really big shift. And, um, you know, I mean, Skyfall was in 2012. Right. So that was only whatever, 11 years ago or something. But in gay years, that was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. You know, like in terms of acceptance of gay rights and so forth. That was quite some time ago, you know, so um, uh, the military stuff, the military inclusion stuff happens in 2011, you know, so it's right around that time and and the culture is still changing. So it's interesting to notice that because um, you know, Bond isn't just following, you know, Bond is leading sometimes. Mm -hmm. And and that Mm -hmm. is a very interesting thing to notice for um, a series of films that people Sometimes, you know, write-off is just very traditional, uninteresting, you know, nothing much going on there. There's a lot going on in these films.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I'm wondering – Stephen and I talked about this a little bit a few days ago. And I was trying to make sense of why it is that the Craig era feels so much more interesting and compulsively watchable and meaningful – in the earlier eras and I think Susan you're probably right part of it is, is that it's contemporary and we're in the moment and they make a little more sense but I wonder also if there is not a kind of freeing of the character and yes. the ability to explore the nuances of a character in a way that's realistic freeing of those kinds of the constraints of all this you know cloistered masculinity that yes. has been you know shaping the character's portrayal for decades before we really get to to the Craig era.
2: I think that's exactly right, you know, and um, it is really interesting to notice that, so, you know, part of what's going on in these movies is the suggestion that sexism really isn't that good for anyone, you know, because there is that freeing up and he's able to be more vulnerable. You know, he's less flat of a character too, so that's partly why these movies are more watchable, you know? he when you know, so, um, he becomes more attached to M. They have friction, you know, he calls her bitch and all that and his, um, you know, test and all that, but, um, you know, uh, they become more close and he has a kind of vulnerability. Um, you know, he's less sexist. He's not super homophobic anymore. And, um, there's just more room, like you said, for him to experiment and to become like a fuller person to the extent that, you know, uh, you know, part of what happens in the movie is that M is shot, uh, as yeah. you mentioned earlier, Jeff, in his um, in the Skyfall, which is the, um, you know, the familial home of Bond in Scotland. And, um, you know, t- they're very tender with each other. Mm-hmm. There is no chance that in those earlier movies, there would be that degree of earnest tenderness, you know? Even if the, yeah. there was some tenderness there, it would always be kind of a cheeky kind of thing in a certain way and, and distanced, you know. This is very direct tenderness on both the part of M um, and Bond, too, as, as she's dying there. And, um, you know, that's an entirely new thing for him. And that's a theme that runs throughout this concluding period, that there's a kind of fullness of the character and a kind of experimentation outside of you know, how we think of traditional male masculinity. And that, I argue, opens up the possibility that defines the concluding period, which is that, um, you know, queer people can be included now because they're not, yeah. you know, that, that sort of flatness of character doesn't preclude them. That sort of, you know, you're mm-hmm. either this or that. So the binaries, you know, to put it in like intellectual or scholarly terms, mm-hmm. the binaries are breaking down. And yeah. it's Bond that's doing that, you know. It's kind of amazing, you know, for mainstream yeah. film in like the spy genre and so forth. Um, so it's really it's quite something, I think, that's going on there. And and you know what happens in the concluding period is that you know you do get full inclusion in the political realm, like moving from the you know Bond to the political. And the reason why that's so important in you know U.S. politics is because um, you know people regard it as sort of the fulfillment of American ideals. You know, of mm-hmm. the the story in the United States is, you know, if, if you weren't included at the founding over time, eventually, you know, you will be included, you know. And so I think that's part of what makes people happy about these films, too, because they they are sort of, you know, they have this under theme of inclusivity and gender equality in, you know, Bond. Emma's uh, like his mother in some you know, She's mm-hmm. a very maternal figure and he loves his mother, you know. So they're mm-hmm. very satisfying in a certain kind of way that makes you you know maybe even love the bond character you know even yeah, more, yeah, and, and, more and, more.
1: and his, as he as he is presented as a a fuller and more inclusive and less sort of defensive and rigid character um i I, I think you made an important point which is, which is these these bin, these binaries or, or these exclusionary, Ideas are not good for anyone, even the person who, you mm-hmm. know, the, the, the straight white male who's, you know, the bond, bond himself was damaged by these binaries and exclusions. And it's only through them breaking down that Bond is allowed a, a, to reach a sort of place of reconciliation, as you say, with his mother and mm-hmm. perhaps even in the final movie, reconciliation with the idea of, of family or, yeah. or of having sort of, you know, stable uh, ties um, with people that, yeah. that, that's not available to someone who's just performing um, yeah. uh, masculinity yeah. in, the, in the earlier there, period. There's
0: a maturation process to mm-hmm. the character as we go on. And it's notable, right, that, that he reacts to the betrayal of Vesper Lind in pretty stereotypical and traditional ways, mm-hmm. right? But what we learn is that in so doing, it's not a source of power, it makes him miserable right? It sends him into deep depression, right? That takes a long time for him to come out of. And so there is this kind of uh, maturation process in which things that matter beyond him yeah. and people matter beyond him. And I think we're supposed to believe that's true about Bond in the earlier movies in the sense of he's a, a, a nationalist spy figure, right? Yeah, he's defending the name yeah. of queen and country. But it's not clear that that ever really is important to Bond in any of the earlier eras. He's a deeply selfish and narcissistic character. And the part of what's going on in the Craig movies is his journey through that, mm. right? It seems yeah. to me.
2: Yeah. I mean, he can have a relationship with M that is not sexual at all. It's very emotional. You know, sometimes she saves him you know, so he was about to get fired because of his declining skills because of his age and other, you know, factors and so forth. So his, it it is that he's more mature. It is that we can connect to him better, uh, you know, in many ways. Um, But also, you know, he can fail, you know, he's, he's failing, he's a failing soul, you know, he's getting older, that happens. And he's not happy about it, you know, and he's grumpy, and he blames her and so forth at certain times, you know, but like, you know, these are things, I mean, the Bond audience is aging also, right? Mm-hmm. So these are things that we can relate to, you know, yeah. like what what is that aging going to look like? And it's, as a consequence, it's it's a much darker set of movies, you know, and, and much more, um it's not just darker, it's much more um like contemplative, you know, he's self-contemplative yeah. in, a, in a different yeah. kind yeah. of way. Never, 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 Sean Connery, you would have any of this kind of introspection, you know, that, right. that just... That would never
1: happen. So what do you make of the the conclusion to the Craig era of, of No Time to Die?
2: Well, I really love No Time to Die. And part of that is because it was the first film, I think, that I saw in the post-quarantine, you know, slash pandemic period. And it was really fun to be in that kind of movie, you know, back in a the theater, watching with a bunch of other people. It was pretty full, you know, and all that. Um. But I also like it because I think it's a it's a ending for the Craig period that really makes sense and lives up to the growing complexity of the plot lines, you know, at this mm. time. So, um, you know, basically what happens in the end is his own addiction to violence, which is part and parcel of, you know, male masculinity in the old old school way, you know, or you know, what people now call toxic masculinity, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's what gets him in the end because the, uh, villain, Lucifer, they're still coming up with those names. They're a little, you know, wow, on the nose, um, Lucifer, um, you know, and he get in a fight in the end, um, on this Island and, you know, the, the world's, you know, coming to an end if Bond doesn't save it and so forth. And um, Lucifer is, you know, poisoned by this virus, go figure, you know, by this virus Mm -hmm. that he's carrying around his DNA and so forth. And um, in the course of their altercation, where Bond gets shot and then they're fighting, he, um, you know, gets the blood of Lucifer into his um, open wound. And that means that he's poisoned now, too, you know, that he Mm -hmm. or maybe he was all along. But in any case he can't, he has domesticated in that last film. He has mm-hmm. a, a, you know, a singular monogamous partner. He has a child, you know, who he mm-hmm. has great affection for. He's like worrying about the kids, you know, um, stuffed animal while he's like running away to save the world, you know, that kind of thing. But, um, you know, he, he, he is killed off by despite all those vulnerabilities and that development. He's, he's killed by his own toxic masculinity. And, and Lucifer says that to him, you and I, we're the same, Mm -hmm. you know, we're the same person. It's very profound in a certain kind of way. And so bond can't go back to the world anymore as it is like the world in some ways can't contain James bond. Like he doesn't fit in anymore. That toxic masculinity doesn't have, um, a place in dominant culture. And so he has to, you know, stay there and die. Um, he just can't go back. Otherwise he'll poison the rest of the world. And so, yeah, that seems to me to be a pretty fitting ending. Now they'll bring him back in some way, not Daniel Craig, but some other, you know, it's, it's too lucrative a franchise. So mm-hmm. they'll bring him back in some other form and we'll see who that is. But, you know, there's a pretty good chance that they'll they will select someone who is, um, you know, not just this white um, British dude and 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 in that sense sort of try to move beyond in a representational way, not just in a storyline way, the you know, the whole yeah. cool toxic male masculinity that he represents. Yeah. Yeah. But I like you know, it. I as, think you're it is talking,
0: as you were talking, Susan, it it struck me just now that the James Bond franchise has become a kind of folk franchise. Mm-hmm. That is to say It has taken on the status of allowing itself to be shaped and molded by every new generation of creators and audiences in a way that very few franchises do, right? And so it's why it doesn't matter that there's going to be a new Bond enterprise and it'll be totally different. It'll be a new creator and presumably a new generation's vision and it's it makes it such a rich source for your sort of analysis, right? That means to track and trace the development of culture over time. Totally.
2: And we know that we're in this kind of very transitional space in our world. You know, we don't know what's coming next. So that period is over, you know, that concluding Mm -hmm. period. Like we've, we've, we know now the toxic masculinity doesn't work, but what is going to come next that we don't know. But now we know that the traditional dominant dialogue is one that rejects toxic masculinity. And that's different. And it's profound. So what's going to come next? Who knows? But that'll be fun. It'll be fun to see for in the real world and in the movies, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I I think on that bombshell, uh, we should say uh, the book is LGBT inclusion in American life, pop culture, political imagination, and civil rights. The author is Professor Susan Burgess, and it's it's been a pleasure, Susan. Thank you so much thank for your time. Thank you so much. It's been great. I
2: feel so much fun. Thank you guys so much.